This is Writing Grief, a podcast for writers who want to transform loss into art. We are your hosts, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. We are writing our own grief stories, some of which are published, and others we've worked on for years. We believe we don't need to write grief alone. And finding other grief writers is magic. In this conversation, we talk about why we're writing a memoir about grief and our young writer selves, how we got started with writing. For me, being a small town weirdo and witnessing injustice as a young person and writer. And so added to our usual content warning for this episode, there is reference to residential schools, racism and misogyny in this episode. And as in every episode, this is a conversation about grief, which includes subjects such as death, pregnancy, child loss, suicide. So if you're not up for that, this might not be the pod for you at this time. And one extra warning, this episode also has cursing. So headphones might be a good idea here. Looking back, Millie, how do you feel about it? And how's the writing going? It was fun to talk about our younger selves. And I feel compassion for my younger and current self. I see how important writing has been to me and I feel really grateful for every author I've read who's helped me think about the writing I want to do and the type of writer I want to be. Recently, I've been reading fiction. I go through reading phases where fiction just doesn't make it into the rotation. But these days, I've been reading physical books and listening to audiobooks and finding appreciation for younger narrators. So recently, for example, I read All in One Day, which was so delicious, Eden Robinson's book, Son of a Trickster. I think young narrators teach me so much about how to share a point of view on the world, how it functions, and how we all come to the world with our own experience. And just reminds me that when I'm writing memoir, I have to remember to speak from my own experience because that's what I have to offer. What about you? How's your writing going, Rachel? Well, I just love that reminder of speaking from our own experience. For me, I've been noticing in my writing just thoughts or reflections about how this pandemic was supposed to be easier for introverts. And I've been reading more, I guess, studies and some of them, not necessarily academic studies, I guess, but articles and think pieces about how it's actually harder for introverts just to be in the world because we feel things more deeply. And so it doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, the world shutting down and us retreating has been easier for us. I'm feeling that myself, even going out in public how even that's like extra hard, like it's been harder even than before. And I've been thinking about my younger self out there too and feeling the younger self who's feeling deeply with little guidance and tools. And I'm so grateful that I found the best tool, writing, reading too through books, finding that connection with writers across time and space. And also how writing has led me to more people who feel deeply too, like you, Melly. Ah, thank you. So this is our conversation on why write a grief memoir. Let's get into it. How's it going? It's going. I'm excited to talk about why we do this thing. Why the heck this topic feels like. I also want to add a why the hell do we do it? Yeah, we're talking about why we write memoir and why we write a memoir about grief. And so other than the sort of like average and irritating drive to write, which 
if people are listening, I'm assuming they've had. And is it enough to say, because we want to, what is it about memoir and grief that draws us in is what I'm hoping we can explore. For sure. We just want to write about grief, although some people might think we're a bit weird for doing so. Like there are so many books on why we write and the experience of writing. I just typed why write in the search bar in my browser and the entries are many. I could spend years on there. And of course, near the top is the algorithm thinks I'll be impressed by what famous authors say, which I guess I am. But I feel like I've read so many books about writing and I, I do want to talk about why we write just the drive itself. But I think it would be great if we could focus on why we write creative nonfiction, why we're into personal storytelling, memoir, and then why do we want to write about grief? And we've talked before about how literary writing is not necessarily known for like upbeat, sunshiny content through and through. And yeah, so what are you hoping to get out of this questioning of why? Answers maybe, but I don't know. I have some reasons and we'll get into those for why I think I'm writing in this genre. And yeah, like you, I definitely perk up when I see writers who I admire say why they write. Often, this seems like they often answer with confusion about like, why wouldn't they? And it feels like it's a compulsion for them and for a lot of us, I guess, probably myself included. Yeah. Sometimes, but some days when it's hard, I'm thinking you don't have to write memoir. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Nobody's making you do this. Exactly. And that's a great thing too about having a sense of humor and not taking yourself seriously because you don't have to write a memoir about grief. So I thought it would be good to clarify the difference between memoir as a genre and a memoir is like a book about a person writing about their own life. I don't know if we need to differentiate that. I think that writing memoir is a genre that doesn't require book length format. So you could write a memoir type essay and those kind of break down into different categories, I guess, too, with mm-hmm. different levels of creativity. Memoir doesn't necessarily imply, like you you see a lot of movie stars and famous mm. notable people who write mm. have a celebrity memoir. memoir. Yeah, yeah. And those are often very factual. And there's um, often a ghostwriter for them too. Yeah. And that writer is like basing it on probably interviews with them. Uh There are notable exceptions, certainly ones that I've enjoyed. So one of the things about writing a memoir is people can write many memoirs, like in terms of the book, a memoir, you can't really write your whole life in one book. And so part of creating creating a memoir (laughs) is like selecting. So going, okay, I'm going to select this train, Mm -hmm. this track of my life and how all these other things, and I'm going to find all the for some reason, I'm thinking marbles. I don't know why marbles are going to be on a track, but all these little things that you're going to gather and put into this pile and say, okay, these all have a similar cohesive theme and that's going to be a memoir. And then you can also go into a different part of your life and find different marbles and put them into a different track. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I kept <laughs> that particular metaphor, but anyway, that was... I like that because I'm thinking of Audre Lorde's cancer journals, which are kind of journal entry style, but I'm just only mentioning it because it's about a specific set of experiences around illness. Yeah. But of course, it brings in other aspects of the person's life. And like Mary Carr has three memoirs. There's Liar's Club, 
Cherry and then Lit. So you can go through those three books and find out different stages of her life. But then some people do write a memoir and they're not really a writer, but they are, but they don't feel compelled to write. They're not coming to it from the writer angle. They're coming to it from, I have this life lived and I want to write about this one particular experience. So that yeah, yeah, something that happens as well. So you mean like someone who has become notable or expert in an area that's not necessarily to do with writing and then they want to tell the story of their life. It's like a project that they want to do, which is also wonderful. Yeah. So I want to talk about when we started writing just to get into that because I love origin story stuff. So I think the first thing I remember writing and completing. I made my own book of short stories with illustrations and they're very sweet. The stories are about a family of rabbits and it's basically like Beatrix Potter fan fiction. There's a story about a cat named Puff and a turtle named Taryn. And then there's one story that has a human in it and it's about a lonely man who has three legs and he goes shoe shopping. And basically the story is him accepting that shoes are only sold in pairs. So I've never really been good at endings. When do you remember starting to write and actually putting your mind to things and making writing projects? I think I realized young that I wanted to be a writer. And like a lot of people, I think I've interviewed so many editors and asked them that question too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks, it's like in elementary school and it's often a teacher. So that was the case for me was a teacher who saw something in my writing. I wrote a poem. It was an assignment we had and I think what she saw was like my true voice because I was literally mute at times and I lived in, inside my head a lot at that time. I relate to that and very much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I think that's part of what I love about writers is finding other people who have that background and similarity in common or that background in common. I would laugh at jokes that were unspoken at that time. I was often kind of writing in my head dialogue for people while I was watching them, which is so <laughs> weird. I like to say that made me wildly popular in an ironic voice. But in fact, I was really also neuroatypical, quite different. And kids notice those things, especially in a small town where you can't really get away or there's no chance of reinvention <laughs> at any stage in a small town. Yeah. Some of the autobiographical poems in my book, my first book, were about what I experienced by being branded other strange or outsider. And other things were about what I witnessed from that quiet space, because mm -hmm. I think that's what I discovered. Writing was this door into being able to relate, to literally relate things that I witnessed, but also relate with someone else through a book. So I was having that experience through reading. I was definitely reading a lot of books in my loneliness, again, a common writer origin story, and feeling like I could connect with these people who were not in front of me, but who had bared their thoughts and their hearts in their pages. Yeah, your book is called Galaxy, the poetry book. Yeah, I moved a lot as a kid. I'm just struck by what you said about not being able to reinvent yourself, which is such a great experience as a writer, because it can sometimes like make yourself into a character. So yeah, the feeling powerless about what you're witnessing, especially as a quiet kid and having a sense something is wrong with this picture. I guess we're around the same age. I'm just thinking too, like 
another reason why I started writing, I think, and understood it as a job and as almost like a superpower was I went to a reading by Robert Munch, the children's story book writer. Did you read Robert Munch? Yeah, I, I still read Robert Munch to my kids now too. I love you forever. And yeah. So like, yeah. I have a signed copy of Millicent in the Wind with my ticket in the front of the book. I was just looking at it the other day, but we went to this event and it was basically a reading. And so he read from his books that I already knew. And then he told a story that he hadn't published yet. And I think it was the one about markers like purple, green, and yellow or something like that. But he hadn't published it yet. So he said, okay, I have this story. It's not a book yet, but I'm going to tell it to you now. And so he was there on the stage and he was sitting on a black stool and he had a spotlight over him, no set pieces, no fancy lighting. And I remember, I was probably like seven, I remember looking around And seeing all the kids just sitting captivated while he was speaking and holding nothing. He was speaking from his mind and telling this, what I thought was a really funny story about drawing on the wall. And I remember just thinking, wow, everyone is captivated. Not that I would have used that word. Imagine if I did. But but yeah, I just remember being like, wow, this is amazing. Like all these kids who are usually squirming and having a hard time sitting still, they're all paying attention. But yeah, that was just my little like Robert Munch love moment. <laughs> is it part two that you wanted people to pay attention? Like you oh. figured out that you could get some kind of attention through oh. your writing that maybe you weren't getting. I definitely think oh, that wow. was part of it for me. Yeah, I guess so. I never thought of it that way. Wanting to be seen. It's a real human thing. Huh. Interesting. Now I feel a little interested in thinking about that. I don't know if that's why I started writing, but definitely like when I think about memoir and journaling and like writing, calling into the void, like putting your thoughts only on the page. I started my first diary. I was around eight and it actually said diary on it and it had a key with a tiny little lock, which apparently as I wrote in one of the early entries there that my brother broke it. I blamed him for breaking the lock and I was very upset about it. As much as I joke, it's a bit heartbreaking to read that journal. I still have the diary. And that was the summer that my parents' marriage busted apart. And so I was like writing my favorite colors, like super femme, like pink and purple. And my name is Melanie and this is my favorite animal. But I also wrote about my mom and dad fighting. And the day they told me they were getting a divorce or... Like I spelled it like divorce. I spelled it wrong, which was, I don't know, for some reason that always sticks out to me as a little bit heartbreaking. For sure. Yeah. And so I even quoted my father, like this is the beginning of the writing things down that people say, which is amazing. I feel like I like eight-year-old me gave myself a gift. Oh yeah, no, like this really happened. I wrote it down at the time and I have the quote that I wrote down was like him saying to my mom during a fight, well, if that's the way you feel, you can just pack up the kids and leave. So to have that written down, like I write down things people say all the time. It's how I've developed my dialogue writing skills, but I don't know. I'm just like so grateful that I had written that. And so anyways, I feel like my writing is a lot about what people do and say and how I can or cannot connect with them and like why people do the things they do and like big questions like why am I here I don't know do you remember keeping a journal do you keep a journal now did you have dear diary moments 
I was fairly itinerant about my journals. I would start them and then not finish them. But actually your story about writing that down, witnessing within your family and saying things probably that nobody would want you to repeat or talk about again. I remember writing a lot about fantasies of what I wish I could say to my mother in particular, who was very difficult in terms of me being able to express my own thoughts or feelings that are different from hers. So yeah, I kept a journal in that sense. And then I wrote a lot of funny pieces. Like I wrote one where a main character was someone's big left toe. A character. What? The character was the big left toe? (laughs) Yeah, it was the main (laughs) character of the story. It was was the big left toe. Oh, wow. Um, That's cute. That's cute as hell. And even that one I actually (laughs) shared with my family. So I remember my mom reading it and going, I don't really know much about writing. And so I don't really know what to say about this. But but also, I think that points to maybe why I liked it too. It was like, this was my own space that I could Mm. enter into that nobody in my family was in. People express themselves creatively, but more through visual arts. And so I was like the first writer that I remember of not just my generation, but the generations that were around when I was young. Sorry, you're saying you remember that you were the first writer in your family, like there weren't other people writing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Also, for me, a lot of the experience of not only being othered and feeling really outside of a lot of things happening, I was still in a privileged position in terms of my class and race. And I witnessed a lot of, this is the 80s in a small town where there were kids bust in from reserves to go to schools in my town too. So like colonial schooling, there was even when I was quite young, there was still an active residential school in my town. And so the levels of racism and misogyny that I was witnessing, I felt really powerless about being able to change as a child in that Mm -hmm. environment. But I learned, I guess, through writing that I could record and write about what I saw. And I did some of that then, like I published some pieces, mostly in the kind of feminist genre that did not go over very well in terms of the people in power reading the stuff that I wrote. And there was often pushback about that. And then I started publishing indie things. I wrote lots of zines, photocopied pages and stolen photo photocopies I guess at the time and then would leave them I would go to the big city which mm. was Winnipeg and leave them in this final record store and those were really like messages in a bottle and declarations of my existence I say I leave them but I would make a deal with the guy at the counter okay they would have a space where you could sell your zines in the store and then I was self-publishing people were reading my funny poems my angsty writing about things I wouldn't say well I was witnessing all those things I wouldn't say that I was like writing topical pieces that were necessarily challenging that it was definitely more from like an angsty lonely space that I was writing those words but then people would buy them I would never meet them and then I would go and get my couple bucks or whatever from the vinyl record store guy and feel like I was able to express myself and tell these sort of deeper thoughts and feelings to somebody out there who was reading it and maybe feeling similarly or feeling like connected in some way to me. Wow. I love picturing you going to the record store. What big city, 
It's in Winnipeg, right on Portage Avenue. Those stores don't exist. Oh, actually, one of them was like off Portage, I remember. They don't really exist anymore, I don't think. And this is like when you're a teenager or like early, what age? Yeah, like, yeah, this was high school. So in high school, I had to go into the city. There were some things that you just couldn't do in the town. And Mm -hmm. then I would be sent on just like a Greyhound bus to go in the city by myself to do these things in the day and take the bus back because it was a long drive. So what I would do in the day that I would go check things out at the record store, not talk to anybody. I would never have a conversation with the guy other than can I wow. send my scene here? Shyly looking down and just oh hand him over these things with like my deepest. I'm just picturing feelings. you as like a tiny businesswoman, just like delivering your zines. Just, yep. She doesn't say much, but she writes well. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. And it definitely, like you mentioned, residential schools, the last one closed in Canada in like 92 or BC. Maybe that's BC. I'm a fat check. That sounds about right. That's when I finished high school. And the one in our town was closed by that point, but only just closed. And the impact of that, of colonialism is like vast and not something I can articulate well, but just there was like such intense in your face racism and bearing witness to that and being like a quiet person who couldn't express themselves very well too was always like, I just turned to books and to writing to be able to try to express myself that way you know not that's the problem <laughs> it's my lack of ability to express but it would it would have been good it's funny I have a lot of regrets over how I handled my time in that town and the support I was able to give to close friends of mine who had really intense racist incidents but I guess that's where I just started like seeing things though as a writer because when you're quiet people Mm-hmm. say things in front of you I guess and yeah were you the person that your friends went to because you didn't interrupt or give unwanted advice <laughs> yeah for sure yeah considered a good listener mm-hmm. because there was a lot going on in my head I remember also my uncle at the time saying she doesn't say much but when she does it's really interesting <laughs> so, oh my gosh what a great thing I mean, to have said about you that's just like that ideal like, the highlight of my childhood. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Sad moment for sure. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> because um, a lot of other people weren't saying that I would say more. They were just like, be quiet and I don't want to hear from you. So sure. Yeah. Stop asking questions. Place. That's what my mom, why you ask so many questions? So yeah, here we are asking why, but yeah. So why keep writing now? I love the idea of young Rachel, like putting your messages out there and knowing that someone bought your stuff, never meeting them. I love picturing that. Why do you keep writing now? Like why continue working on your memoir? I know that's what we're here for. We're here till we're doing this podcast to look at the practice or activity of writing memoir, writing a grief memoir. Like why keep going? Yeah. Why do you keep going, Millie? Oh my, why do I keep going? Some days I don't know why at all. And that's just the way it is. And I've learned to accept that I might not know why, but I want to. And I have gained a lot of creative satisfaction around trying to tell a truth because it's not the truth because that would imply there is only one. And I philosophically don't believe that. And then, of course, now what we know about memory and how vastly incorrect it is, it's fascinating to me like an oxymoron or what is it? It's a seemingly game of opposites to be like, I need to tell my truth. And then 
I know that my memory is flawed. This kind of like trying to reshape what happened has been important to me. And sometimes I think, oh God, if I could just get this memoir over with, I could move on to other things. But I think that's just my impatience talking. I write my memoir now because I just love it. And I don't know, once I accepted that this was just something I was going to do and that, okay, maybe it's selfish, maybe it's self-absorbed, maybe it's narcissistic, blah, 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 but I'm going to keep doing it. And once I just accepted that that was how it was going to be, it's become a lot easier to be at peace with it, but it is a hard thing to get a handle on, to wrangle that into an eloquent statement really. But yeah, what about you? It's funny you saying, I love it because I had written my notes about why and I hadn't included that. But when you said that, I was like, yeah, I love it too. And what I love is the moment where I more deeply understand what I'm about Mm -hmm. and I'm able to have that kind of reflection. I think I've heard writers say, I really don't know what I truly think about something until I write about it. And for sure, that's true of me. And then I think for me, I've had a hard slog of writing. I have not published a book since my book came out in 2010. So that's 11 years. So I've been one of those writers who call themselves a writer, but who aren't producing. So I'm still writing things, but I haven't really been able to fully develop something for some time. And part of that's just like life getting in the way of small children, all that kind of stuff. And the bigger grief part of what we're talking about too here really did set me back in some ways mentally yeah. writing and feeling yeah. like I didn't want to keep writing. Yeah. There's I an expression the I don't think I've used here mm-hmm. yet, but it's from Annie's Nin that's we write to taste life twice and it's something that was like constantly going through my mind for many years, not continuously every single day, but it did not too infrequently going through my mind after we lost the baby that I didn't want to taste this twice. It was just too painful. And so that kind of shook me to my core because obviously, as I'm saying, I really found my voice through writing, like from being almost literally mute in some cases, not speaking. But I keep going now because again, I'm going to truly learn what I feel about something from writing. And then there's the community, I think too, like we touched on, like writers are my people. The fact that you're like, oh yeah, I understand what you mean about that, mm. about being quiet, being in, living in your head. And so having those other people who feel the same way and being able to interact with them in this deep way, that's not superficial, all the stuff, all the too much stuff, mm-hmm. the real writers who... I connect with who are truly my people are the ones that never would say that's too much. It's let's go there. Let's go to that deeper place and talk about what things mean and what's under the surface of most conversation. Yeah. I totally understand the sort of like capitalist pressure to produce things and to go, am I this, am I a writer? If I don't produce who you are, but at the same time you wonder And yeah, I guess it just occurred to me too that tasting everything twice, the idea of that or not knowing how you feel about something until you write it, I think that must be a trait, like a personality trait of some kind, because I maybe like stereotypically some of my more socially active extroverted friends like talking things out and that seems to be enough for them. Or maybe they like play pickleball or something like whatever they do. But I don't know why pickleball just came into my head. But the idea like of needing to process things. And I definitely relate to the grief that I am trying to write about in my memoir having an effect on my ability to write 
regularly or to write with clarity or to write the really painful stuff. So yeah, I guess some people journal to process and that's also great. And every sort of self-help system seems to recommend it. There's research on how journaling about your past experiences, how you felt about them then, how you feel about them now can relieve the effects of stress or trauma and can help people and help their depression even. So I journal, I journal now, I journal by hand. I have like friggin' like four different books. Sometimes I try to write in different books for different things. But anyways, I try to keep one book that's just a journal where I don't screen myself. I don't feel pressure to come up with great ideas. And then I sometimes journal in my word processor as well. I recently lined up all my diaries or my journals, which I think like journal is like mature somehow. I don't know. Diary used to be like, what's his name? Samuel Pepys, the diaries of Samuel Pepys that were always in the newspaper. I recently lined up my journals on my shelf in the new place where we moved into. So it felt pretty good. Like I love looking at them and reminding myself like how long I've been journaling, but that's me rambling. So you said you do journal, but... Can you tell me what these diaries of Samuel Pepys are? <laughs> I don't know that. Oh, Samuel Pepys. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I feel like he will be around 17th century. He was like in the Navy and he was really famous. He's basically famous for keeping a diary. He kept, he has like diary entries for every single day. So to be like, I saw this or, oh, this, like just these very kind of like short little entries that tell a lot about the past and his time. And I remember the Samuel Pepys entries being in the newspaper. So it'd be like in the same section of the horoscopes and the comics and the word search, not the crossword. The crossword is like a whole other serious thing, but like Samuel Pepys, there'd be like a little entry, like on this day in 16 something or other, Samuel Pepys wrote this. And then you'd read this like little, jolly little like English man reflecting on his day. Anyways. I don't know if we've already touched on this or we feel like we're circling around this, but that's fine. Like, what is why memoir? And I guess, too, I'm really curious. Do you remember when you set your mind to writing a memoir? There's never really like pivotal moments, but maybe there is. Maybe you had a clouds parting moment or maybe it was just like a slow decision. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know if I do have the answer to it. I think like they're actually connecting to our therapy episode. There probably was like some insights that came out of therapy that made me realize, oh, I wonder if I could tell this as a story. And certainly I think I've always just been a memoir writer too, though. My poetry was very autobiographical as well, even though for some reason I publish it with a disclaimer about that. Yes. <laughs> I was feeling weird at the time. Yes. And yeah. just scared about the authorized version versus this unauthorized version of my life because I'm not, I've never had felt I had permission to tell the story of my own life. And I envy anybody who does keep regular. I love that you can line those up on your shelf and think of David Sedaris, who's now republishing his journals mm-hmm. from all these years ago. And definitely I feel like I've lost insights and voice that maybe I could have collected but have been I think I said before so itinerant about journals and sometimes I'm just really precious about my words and I want them to come out in a certain way but well I guess like let me just are often oh sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I was going to say David Sedaris's journals. Like I read some of them and they're good. That's like, those aren't my journal entries. They're hilarious. He completes the end of the story. The neighbor did this and then this happened. Yeah, that's enviable, but we're not all David Sedaris. So I just want to be clear. My journals are not like that. <laughs> my journal entries are sometimes just gripes and I'm tired and why bother? And maybe that's why I do it too, because I need a place to dump all that toxic garbage, but I interrupted you. I wrote morning pages for a long time that uh, yes. were that, morning basically pages. just mm-hmm. fuck these people <laughs> and <laughs> just like really unprocessed rants about things that I resented at the time or something. Yeah, and um, there's part of that Julia Cameron Artist Way book is the like, you do the morning pages and you don't look at them and then you put them in an envelope and then at week you open up the envelope or you go back in the journal pages that you weren't looking at and what a poisonous, resentful person you are. (laughs) It's so funny. I remember that so well, but it also taught me like, okay, like I have some stuff going on. It's probably better out than in. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to go back to it. It's funny. I started them again with a group of some of the writers in our community we were doing them in February 2020, I think we started. Ah, yes. And then March 2020 <laughs> happened and I stopped. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that a lot of, I think my first drafts are, because it's autobiographical writing, my first drafts are the journal entry and then yes. second and third draft become more the writing where I'm like the memoir writing where I'm processing going, does this belong? Is that petty? Am I just annoyed about something that like it gives me that more circumspect view on the events of my life that I'm not writing those kind of vitriolic morning pages but I do think that's coming out in the first drafts of things well yeah and I'm thinking of Roxanne Gay our our fave but Roxanne Gay saying there's a difference between and I am quoting her because I had written it down during this talk there's a difference between disclosure and an essay the first outpouring of this is what happened to me is not the writing and I don't know if I've already mentioned that in a previous episode but I think that yeah I can see what you're saying and I'm laughing about the starting the morning pages because my reaction to the pandemic like back in March was I immediately started transcribing my old journals, something that I always wanted to do. I never had time for. All of a sudden I had all this time. I was almost manic compared to everyone else. I felt like people were stunned and I was like, I'm fine. I'm being productive. I'm typing out my journals. Like I'm I'm at 2000, whatever. Like I never finished it and it's so far from being done. But anyways, it was just reminded me of that kind of like funny reaction that I had to feel like, okay, like getting myself in order was to get my journals in order. Like that somehow is like an extension of my identity or something. If I could organize that, then I wouldn't feel so chaotic about what was going on. This is probably an aside, but maybe something for us to think about is Mm -hmm. in the pandemic here, there's a lot of people talking about how they're not feeling in crisis or grief because their life has never been what they expected. And I felt some of that myself, like certainly 2020 was not the hardest year of my life by far. And then I think part of me wanted to be like, well, I've survived worse. And so I'm fine. That would leak out in different ways. Like mostly the light, the pandemic lifestyle is a great lifestyle for a very introverted person like me, like sitting at home and already was teaching online was already something I was using. Yeah. But yeah, that's probably another episode. But what you said strikes me as that too, where everyone else is like abandoning things and you're like, 
I'm good. I'm just going to work on my memoir on my journal entries. Well, and I was just coming to discover that too, like in the months previous to when the pandemic started. And yes, this may be an aside, but I had been off work because I was sick. I was like mentally unwell. I could live with depression and anxiety and have for going on, I don't know, 14 years or something like that since I've been diagnosed and medicated on and off, I should say. But anyways, the point is I had already been in some kind of like hibernation or wintering as that beautiful book, Catherine May, I think her name is, but I had already been going through that and learning how to be alone and finding, oh, I really do love being alone. And this is actually important to me. And yeah, this lifestyle really works for me. And I think having depression and anxiety and then, and feeling isolated and feeling like, why isn't anyone noticing that things are fucked? I feel this sense of gloom and this sense of dread and I feel helpless and all that kind of hopeless depression stuff. But everyone around me was going, oh God, like what's going to happen? They were having anxiety. They were saying things that reminded me of me in my early days of being ill. And I just felt validated. And I don't know if I love admitting that, but anyways, this is reminding me of, I think in your writing course, you had a reminder to create more than you can. And I was taking that course, I think it was in May. So it was like, the first few months of the pandemic. And so I really was holding on to it. I was like, okay, yes, I'm going to create content. I'm going to be creative. I'm going to try to overcome this blocked feeling in terms of generating new work. And I was transcribing my journals, but I wasn't writing anything new at that point. And so I think I probably read that, oh, create more than you consume. Good reminder, Rachel. And like intellectually was like, yeah, that's a great tip. But then I probably pressed the play button on whatever podcast I was listening to and went back to reading a book on craft at the same time because I can't seem to do one thing at a time or like ordering more books about how to write. Because if I just read all the books about how to write, then when I'm ready to write, I'll be raring to go. And I've learned that like I could read all the books I want on writing and capitalism will have me buying all the books and having them all on my shelves and feeling good about myself just because of it. And then not reading those books until six months later. But lately I've been thinking about create more than you consume. And I've been trying to turn the podcast off and Mm. take some time to be in the quiet and pick up my pen and the doom thoughts are there. And I think that's why I want something to listen to so that I can attach to something. That's the way I've been coping is to consume as much information as I can to make sure that if it all goes down, like I will have heard from all the experts on every topic and I won't be so paralyzed. But yeah, I've recently just hit a wall in terms of what I can take in. So I am hearing my own voice when I sit down to write. And I don't know, I just, without sounding corny, I feel like I've spent so much time in my life being disconnected from my own intuition. And so to be able to hear my own voice and write is so great. Like, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. And even you saying this now is making me think that sort of, I think when we're consuming media, so watching shows and listening to podcasts now there's just so much out there and even reading Mm. craft books although I think I do find reading a craft book as long as it's like really specifically focused on helping your writing yeah I usually don't count that in the consume column as long as it's provoking that aha that yes thing that we love about writing but getting to the deeper instead of just making you jealous and feeling like you're not doing it I guess that's the distinction for me 
in terms of yeah. reading, writing books. But yeah, and I think maybe that actually does fundamentally get to the real heart of why. And you've touched on that too about capitalism getting you buying things, but also there's so much out there to consume that is really about suppressing our voices and not letting us say what's true and making us feel powerless. All of those things, I think, for me, were in my family unit, but my family unit was like a fractal of our world in terms of silencing us. We're recording this actually at the time of the Oprah interview of Meghan Markle, who in Oprah asked, were you silent or were you silenced? And I really think that I turn to writing the why I write is to stop being silenced when I fundamentally get down to wanting to be able to share my voice and then also wanting to that course I created to encourage and I created that during the pandemic because it was like I just want to give people opportunities to write and to share their voices and not be silenced themselves. Yeah I think that's part of being for me the sort of family silencing is part of breaking the cycle of kind of colonial, keep quiet, look away, don't make connections tradition. But this whole process of making a podcast and even just talking about these things, it feels vulnerable. And obviously I'm excited to be doing this, but I don't know. Do you have fear around not just writing a grief memoir, but making a podcast about writing and not writing the grief memoir? <laughs> But also, I think it's more excitement than fear mm-hmm. right now. There's, those are the flip side of a coin, right? So one side, you've got fear. And then if you can flip it, there's like excitement because I do feel like people don't invest in a podcast unless they really care to spend their time with us. And I appreciate anybody who's listening to us talk for this long on these topics because then that's helping me. I think unsilencing takes me a while to get to it, an hour, but I think really the two whys for me are that kind of don't erase me, unsilent. I want to be seen and heard and be able to express my true voice. And then I also want to connect. And so this podcast project to me feels very much about connecting with other grievers out there, grieving whatever, maybe loss and death, but maybe other things, maybe the way the pandemic changed things for them too. But then feeling, yeah, we have a right to tell our stories and then here's some things that have worked for us to tell our stories and things that we're thinking about when it comes to writing memoir. Yeah, I think it's good to bring it back to connection. I would love to find more writers writing about grief. I always feel so immediately connected to those people and excitement about the possibility of that connection is mostly how I feel. And I don't know, maybe just like being afraid of vulnerability and asking why the hell are we doing this? Like at some point partway through, maybe that's just part of making things and asking why is like part of the thing. It's like, the meaning of life is to search for the meaning of life. I used to work at the Playhouse and there was a sign, just like a masking taped sign hanging in the carpentry shop. That was like someone had printed it because they thought it was funny. It was like six phases of a project. The first stage is enthusiasm. The second is disillusionment. Third is panic. Four is search for the guilty. 
Five is punishment of the innocent. And six is praise and honors for the non-participants. So that's in the context of theater. And these are the makers of the theater company. They're building the sets and they're often never seen. So that is part of the humor of that. But when I put that, those steps, and I seem to have remembered why, like, why are we doing this as part of this list when I was thinking back to this sign, but apparently it's not on there. But I think it is common. There is that stage like, ah, I went out. Why am I doing this? Like that sort of like final hour in terms of a typical like linear project. But yeah, maybe it's just part of it. And there will be a little voice that says, why are we doing this? And even questioning, even though we're saying we want to be seen, we have these intentions about it and probably not going to stop at this point and may as well submit to it and accept it and be happy that this is part of me. But also, yeah, there might just be that voice. Yeah. So I don't know. I like talking about writing is the other thing. Yeah, talking about the craft of writing is really exciting, especially when I am in writing, but also when I'm not writing, I enjoy talking about it too, because it excites me and fuels further writing for me. Mm-hmm. For sure. Even just recording these first few episodes for me have me more focused on what I'm writing and really circling, honing in on the project, maybe. And I think just to be like Roxanne Gay is saying, I'm like constantly quoting her, but I just love this talk that she recently did with 92nd Street Y, MCA in New York. But she was saying, be clear about what you want the reader to take away. And just because it happened to you doesn't make it interesting. Otherwise you're writing for yourself, which is fine, but it's important to think about how you write for an audience. And quote, I do think maybe I will be a little bit more proactive about when I question why I'm doing this. Just remember the reader and remember that I have like an earnest desire to connect to other people. And that's okay. Yeah. And that writing for yourself is a choice too, but obviously that's not the choice that we're making. And there are reasons for that. And for sure in this podcast case, it's the listener. And then in the case of our writing, it's the reader. Mm-hmm. And that connection that we want to create. And I guess like that's part of silencing, unsilencing too, is I want to be able to not just write and say what I feel is my truth, but publish it and have other people respond to it too and be, and have it be out there in the world. Yeah. Our prompt for you is to create more than you consume. So the create more than you can consume assignment really is for you to spend more time on balance in your days writing or doing other creative things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be writing versus consuming. I know how easy from personal experience it is to just stream things for long periods of time. And I would actually exclude music from the consume category. I think we can be really creative and thoughtful while we're listening to music too. And it's sort of like about maybe the intentionality behind how we consume. So even also reading books that are helping spark our ideas. And we know, I think we all know how it feels when we are creating versus consuming. Consuming just feels really passive in our bodies and we slow down. And consuming creatively, I guess, is the thing that kind of sparks us up and has us running to our notebooks. So for me, when I'm working on the Create More Than You Can Consume challenge, I do things like I'll bake more, play with my kids, I'll draw. And so it doesn't just mean writing, although of course that is for me a big part of it too, is writing as well. Love it. 
Thank you for listening to Writing Grief. Keep writing and keep asking why. Thank you for opening your writing heart to the Writing Grief podcast, created and produced by us, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. Visit writinggrief.com for detailed show notes on each episode. We try to link to every book or reference we make in this episode, even if it's just made in passing. If there's something we missed or you want to know more about, you can contact us on our website, writinggrief.com, or at podcast at writinggrief.com. Sound editing by Adam Linder of Bespoken Podcasting. Our podcast art was created by the talented Monica Calderon. Find her at monicadesigns.ca. We support Indigenous sovereignty worldwide, and we acknowledge the lands and the first peoples of those lands on which we record our podcast. Our writing practice takes place and benefits from the unceded territories of the Kenyan Kahaka and the Anishinaabeg peoples in the place colonially known as Montreal, Quebec, and the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Sawasan, and Musqueam nations in so-called Greater Vancouver, and of the lands of the El Tirabin Bedouin in South Sinai, Egypt. If you're a non-Indigenous listener, we encourage you to learn about the land and the Indigenous peoples whose territories you write from. Where were the trees you read in as a child? What is the history of the lands that helped you grow into the writer you are today? Who are the people who care for that land now and in the past? This may take some research on sites like native-land.ca. Thanks again for listening to Writing Grief.